the story that we have read from Matthew chapter 2, this story of the visit of the Magi, sometimes called wise men from the East. It's become something of an integral part of the modern portrayal of the Christmas story. Even in the hymn that we have sung, again, they're coming to the cradle, aren't they? They're, you know, we just put it all together. We just conflate uh, Luke's account and Matthew's account and put all these things together. I don't think it's legitimate. I don't think it's really being sensitive to the way the scriptures present these things. Um, many people would be very surprised that the actual things they hear and see presented in Christmas pageants, in Christmas plays, in Christmas movies... Um, Radio City Music Hall's account of the birth of Jesus as the story is told there that um, many of the things that's presented as truth is not truth at all in fact it's embellishment upon the truth through years uh, details have been added details that have no parallel in the biblical record Uh, tonight I'd like to tell you something about those traditions the way in which the story is told um, and then I want to present the biblical account, and I want to endeavor to draw from the biblical account something of its lessons. Where's the embellishments led us? Well, it's led us to tell the story of the three, th- three, um, we three kings, that is, of Orient are. We three kings of Orient are is the song that we sing, and right there you're told we have three in number, and we're not told any number in Matthew's account. We're told that they're kings when Matthew calls them magi, which were astrologers connected with the court of kings, advisors to the kings, counselors to kings, but not really kings themselves at all. They're also presented in terms of uh, names in which they've been given to them, which we have no knowledge of uh, number three or names that they were given. A lot of times three comes out of the fact that three gifts were given, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so they have to have three kings to give three gifts, and each of them gives their own separate gift. And not only that, uh, we know they are Casper by name, and we have uh, Melchior by name, and we have Belshazzar by, Belthazar by name. And they're all of different ages. Um, Casper usually is bearded, has a big white beard, and uh, he's some 60-something person who uh, is a king who hails really not from the east at all. Uh, The modern story is he comes from Turkey, comes from the western coast of Turkey, Tarsus, land of merchants in the ancient world. And again, he's 60 years of age, and he's the one that comes and kneels before Christ. He's the first to kneel, give uh, precedent to the age, the aged. The aged one comes first, and he presents the gift of gold. And then in line comes the next one. It's uh, 40-something. He's in the, his 40s. Uh, a king by the name of Melchior, and uh, he's from Arabia, interestingly enough. So we have one from the west. We have one kind of sort of from the south a bit in Arabia, Saudi Arabia, in the modern uh, way in which we would refer to that region, although it's really east of the Jordan. And um, he comes and brings his gift, which is the gift of frankincense. And then the third one is Balthazar, or Balthazar. And often he's betrayed as a person of black skin. And so he is said to come from the region of southern Yemen, um, or later traditions from northern Africa. 
So he's part of uh, that part of the globe. So you have three men of different ages from different parts of the globe. And each of them comes and presents their gifts in order. And you have it as an impressive pageantry. When it's done in the plays, when it's done in movies, it makes for great theater, it makes for high drama. Unfortunately, it doesn't have much of a relationship at all to the story that Matthew tells in chapter 2 of his gospel. Matthew's story is designed to give us something of a sense of the way that Jesus coming, the Jesus who he begins to describe in chapter 1, uh, the Jesus who is the son of David, who is the messianic king, who is the one who is going to be the next king. Fourteen generations of no kings upon the throne of Israel. They're dominated by foreign powers, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all dominated the Holy Land. And they're waiting for a king to rise of David's seed, of David's line, and Jesus is the next one. Fourteen generations to David the king. Fourteen generations of Davidic kings upon the throne of Israel and Judah. Fourteen generations, no king at all, waiting for the next king to come. And Matthew presents that king in terms of Jesus coming, Jesus' birth in the genealogy of chapter 1. But he not only is the Davidic king, he's also Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. With us. In the days of his flesh, God visiting this world in the person of Jesus. God with us. With us as the church gathers, two or three gathering together in his name. There he is in our midst. He's still Emmanuel. God with us as we gather and worship. And then he's also God with us as he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, as we carry out the work of the Great Commission. This is the Jesus that Matthew presents to us in chapter 1. Of course, the Jesus also who's called Jesus because it is he who will save his people from their sins. Chapter 1 is showing us who Jesus is. It's given us a sense of his identity. We come into chapter 2, having established his identity as the king, having established his identity as God with us, having established his identity as the one who saves his people from their sins, Matthew now comes on to tell us how did people react? How did people respond to the coming of Jesus? Well, they didn't all respond in the same way, did they? Yeah, people like Herod, who responds with hatred. He sees the birth of this child as a threat to his own throne, his own power, his own dominion. And many people see Jesus just in that way. They may not wear a crown or live in palaces or sit upon a throne, but yet they think they're the ones to govern, guide, control their own destiny, their own lives, and they don't need God, and they don't need God's word, and they don't need Jesus' salvation, and they don't need anything that comes from the hand of God. They're sufficient in and of themselves, and so they'll thumb their nose at Jesus and reject him with disdain and with hatred. That's how the world reacts to Jesus. John gives us a picture of this in the prologue that he gives in his gospel when he says he came to the world that he made and the world that he made didn't know him. He came to his own people, the people of Israel, and his own people knew him not. They rejected him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that's why we're so surprised, we should be surprised, that you had Magi, Persian astrologers, coming to Jesus. Because you see, there's some who receive him. There's some who seek him. 
There are some who come to him. There are some who have great joy as they see the star leading them to him or they find the scriptures leading them to him. However we get to Jesus, by star or by scripture or by whatever means God uses to bring us to his son, the joy of our hearts is full as we come into the presence of the one who is the king of Israel, the one who is God with us, the one who is the one who saves his people from their sins. And so that's basically where Matthew's going with the narrative showing the reaction of people like Herod and people like these wise men or magi uh, from the east. And you see the great contrast that really is there in the way in which Jesus is received or not received. Now, we're not going to look at Herod this evening. And perhaps next Lord's Day we'll focus in upon Herod. It's not usually that part of the story that gets told in the Christmas pageants. Certainly not the destruction of the lives of the infants in Bethlehem. It doesn't come into what we think is the purpose of the pageantry of the Christmas celebration. We're not going to look at the people in Jerusalem, how they responded in their astonishment and in their fear. Um, my purpose is to talk about the Magi, to talk about these visitors from the East, my purpose is to say, first of all, something about their identity, then to say something about their importance, and then maybe say one or two things about some insights that we can glean from what's recorded of their visit. First of all, the identity of the Magi. Again, we've already established they weren't kings. Magi were court astronomer, astronomers in the court of kings. They were interpreters of dreams. They were the counselors of the king. Again, when Nebuchadnezzar wakes up at night and he's troubled with a dream, what does he do? He calls his counselors. He calls the wise men, the people that were trained in the arts of divination, to be able to tell the future, to be able to interpret dreams, to be able to discern the stars and their significance. Is there going to be good weather tomorrow? What's the forecast going to be like? We don't have, uh, we can't be Al Roker anymore. Whoever does, Stormfield. Those are the people I remember from the people that did weather prognostications. Of course, I go back far enough for Carol Reed and Tex Antoine back in the day. I don't know who's doing it on the television shows because I don't watch much television. Anything I see, I stream. I don't, I don't really stream the weather. But whoever's doing that, um, that's what the Magi would do. They would tell us it's going to be good forecast with the weather, good forecast with the omens and the signs about going forth and engaging in battles and doing the things that kings do. But generally speaking, ordinarily, Magi are not very well spoken of in the Bible. Their practices of stargazing are frowned upon. They're not commended. They're not something we're to be looking to. Just a couple of verses to indicate this. Perhaps the best is Isaiah chapter 47. Isaiah chapter 47. And of course, if you ever go online, you want to say, what does God think about astrology? What does the Bible say about astrology? Well, here's, here's a passage that tells you at least what it says about stargazers, the people that think they're going to find wisdom, they're going to find answers, they're going to find the future, they're going to find guidance, they're going to find truth from gazing at the stars. Isaiah chapter 47, we'll begin the reading at verse 12. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. He's being a little sarcastic here. 
Okay, go ahead. Read your horoscope. Okay, go ahead. Go to the person who's going to read your palm, who's going to throw out the tarot cards and tell you what your future is. Go to them. Go get your palm read. Uh, perhaps you'll be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror by means of these things. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Let them come and bring your deliverer. Let them come and rescue you from the perils that you face. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Let them come forth and be your saviors. Behold, they're like stubble. Fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such are you who, who um, such to you are those with whom you've labored, who've done business with you from your youth. I mean, these people are going to stargazers. They're going to astrologers. They're going to people that could tell them their horoscopes. And they're trusting in them. And they have a God in their midst who's come and revealed himself in, 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 in manifest ways of wonders and signs and deliverances and power raising up prophets, raising up princes to deliver them. Uh, and they don't resort to that God who sent his prophets morning by morning, day by day, calling them back to them. Instead, they wander about, each in his own direction. And the concluding words are, there's no one to save you. No one to save you among all that stuff, all that enchantment, all that astrology, all that stuff. If you read your daily horoscope and fun, that's fine. I have no problems with that. But if you're taking it seriously and basing your life upon that, that's, that's sure madness. That's sure folly. Go to your God. Bow your head and knee in prayer. Go call upon his name. Trust in him to guide your path. Don't trust in stars. Trust in the one who made them. It's the basic message of God's word. We have mention of Magi in the New Testament, and again, they're not good people. Not the sort of people that you would uh, say, here, this is an example of what Christianity produces. Simon Magus is one of them. He's a Magi, magician, or a sorcerer, or someone who's after power, and he wants to be able to do what the disciples do, disciples of Jesus, lay hands on people, that they would receive the Holy Spirit, and he offers them money. And Peter turns and says to this man, you're just filled with uh, bitterness and you're, you're, may your gold perish with you, he says. And then there's this other guy, his name is um, Elimus, and he's called a, a, a sorcerer, it's a magi, it's the same word that's used here. Um, and this guy Elimus uh, sought to undermine Paul's ministry. He sought to turn the uh, proconsul Sergius Paulus, who apparently came to faith through Paul's ministry. He seeks to turn him away from the gospel. And Paul says to him these words, what, is the, what, is, what do the servants of Jesus think of Magi? Well, son of the devil, he calls him, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And then he strikes him with blindness. You know, God struck him with blindness. God's word doesn't think a whole lot of Magi. And with such biblical statements about Magi, about their practices, isn't it strange? Isn't it strange that in the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel, it's these very people, Magi, 
led to God through the rising of a star and given somehow, some way, some information to connect that star to one whom they know is the one born to be the king of the Jews. It's strange that Matthew would put this in his gospel. And there are many who read this and frown on it. Many think that it's hardly a legitimate story. It could never really have happened. We don't have any independent verification or record of Herod the king putting to death infants in Bethlehem. But we do have Herod the king's character writ large in history. We know what kind of man he was. And he was, his throne was threatened. He'd do things like that in, 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 a, in a breath. He wouldn't care one bit about putting to death infants. And when you really think about it, why would Matthew in a gospel that's written in the lifetime of the people who are still alive when these events occurred. Why would he put... I mean, the gospel was not written 400 years later, projecting a history back centuries. It was written contemporary to people who lived at the time. You had aged people who could look back at the time that Jesus was born, saying, I was in Jerusalem during that time, I don't remember any wise men coming. Why would Matthew put that in print? He, he's writing a gospel in which he's seeking to bear witness to the truth about, this, about Jesus. Why would he undermine it by putting in a fairy tale? Why would he undermine his witness by putting in something that could easily be falsified? I just think the people who just easily discount what the Bible tells us about things like this are just simply not thinking about the time in which these things were written and the ways in which people could have rose up and said whatever you think about Christianity or Jesus don't look to Matthew as a guide he's bringing in stories that have no validity at all this man's a witness commending faith in Jesus and he doesn't want to undermine his account by putting in something that's just nonsense Matthew believed Magi truly did come, making their appearance in the city of Jerusalem. And they were led there by a star from the east, and they asked the question, who is, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Matthew, Matthew does not believe his account of these things can in any way be falsified. This is a true story. This actually occurred. And it's an amazing thing that God does this in bringing these magi to come to Christ, to come to Jerusalem to seek him, to find him, and to worship him, and to know the joy unspeakable and full of glory of having their eyes cast upon the incarnate deity, upon the one who comes to be the savior of the world, the king of the universe. But when they come to Jerusalem, being led of the star, and again, we cannot tell for certain what that star was that they saw. Lots of answers are presented. People say it was a comet, and other people say, oh, no, no, it must have been the convergence of planetary things, and, to, and others say it's a supernova. I'm not an astronomer. I can't tell you what the possibility is. It's one thing over another. But I will tell you it's what God used to get these stargazers who probably in the midst of all of their speculations about what the stars might be saying 
come to the realization, perhaps many of them did, that all this stuff's nonsense. All this stuff's nonsense. I mean, we've told the king many things that our heads could have been cut off because it was all the wrong counsel. But you can't figure out the future by reading the stars or reading tea leaves or reading palms or any of the things that are part of the of, of, of the um, of the occult practices. Uh, you can't divine the future in these ways. Only God knows the future. And only God can speak to the issues that are of great, greatest importance. And maybe as these people looking at the stars are coming to the place of realizing the folly of much of what they're doing, they finally see something that makes sense. They see something that says some reality somewhere and we're going to have to pack our bags and we're going to have to make a trip to Jerusalem and find out where this reality is leading us. And that's exactly what they do. They make this trip. Whatever hardships they experience. There's this great poem by T.S. Eliot that speaks of the visit of the Magi. And he has them in the dead of winter. They're going through all kinds of deprivations and hardships. And they, yet they leave with the joy of thinking it was all worth it. It was all worth it. Whatever hardships might have been in their way. And Scripture didn't tell us anything about it. It just tells us they came to Jesus. It tells us they were led to Jesus. And they're led to Jesus, yes, by a star, but the star didn't bring them all the way to Jesus. The star brought them to Jerusalem, the capital city, where they figured we're going to find the answer to these questions that we don't know when it's full. And so when they come to Jerusalem, they call the, it's Herod who calls the scribes and, and, the, and the, the chief priests to ask the question where the Christ should be born. And it's ultimately it's the scriptures that disclose this. It's God's word that leads them to the final leg of their journey. As it's in Bethlehem of Judea that uh, Jesus is going to be born according to Micah chapter 5 and verse 3. <coughs> Bethlehem, the city of David. <coughs> Bethlehem, the city of notable births. It's not just David was born there. Benjamin was born there. First named by his mother Benoni, named Benjamin by his father, son of sorrows, son of my right hand. These are titles, names that really are anticipating the coming of Jesus, who is the son of sorrow. Man of sorrows will acquaint it with grief, he's called. He's the son of God's right hand, who sits at the throne of the majesty on high. Another person born in Bethlehem was the son of Ruth and Boaz, whose name was Obed. And Obed meant servant. Jesus comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Another child that's born in Bethlehem before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem was Jesse, the father of David. And Jesse is a name that means, tell me what it means. I forgot about it and then I looked it up. Anybody remember the name Jesse? I did this before and I forgot it, looked it up. And said, man, that really fits in to the message. I wish I would have remembered it. I think it might have been something like God's gift. Something like God's gift. Certainly Jesus is the gift of God. And in fact, in fact, is what Jesse means. And I think it is. Uh, it certainly is another name that depicts the coming of Jesus. Bethlehem is significant. It's the place not only of David, the city of David, but the city of these births, of these personages whose very names sort of are anticipating the coming of the one who is the son of sorrows, the son of God's right hand, the servant of the Lord, the gift that God gives, the one who is ultimately David, the lover of God, and also the or loved by God, and then finally Jesus, whose name means 
God, whose name means salvation. And all these names depict who Jesus is. So the Bethlehem birth is something of great significance. As you go back into the Old Testament, pictures of these personages born in Bethlehem. And Jesus, of course, by the prophecy of Micah, is the one who comes forth being born in Bethlehem. He's from ancient days, Micah says. And yet he's the one who comes to shepherd God's people. And so the wise men come to him. Herod has a murderous intent in his desire to know where the Messiah was to be born. But these wise men, when they see his star, they're filled with joy. They're filled with thanksgiving. They've arrived at the destination. They've come to the one whom to come to is to come to reality. It's to come to truth. It's to come to God's grace and provision in the giving of his son. And these are men who seem to be sensible of the magnitude of what it means that this child is born, this son is given, this Jesus has been born of Mary for the very purpose of being the savior of Magi, of such men as these. So they come to worship. They bow before him. They fall on their faces before him. They present their gifts to him. Strange story. But yet a wondrous story. That magi made worshippers. Of men guided by stars and scripture. Of a child and yet a king. And again, much of the account, we can't answer the questions that we might have, all of them. We don't know what really they saw in the skies. We don't know the content of their faith. We don't know how their faith in the king of the Jews related to what happened when they went back home. What happened now? They're going back to the court of the king of Persia and they're magi. What do we do in our vocation as stargazers? Do we continue that or just how do we do this? We just don't know the answers to those questions. Scripture does not tell us. All we can say is it presents us with a remarkable account of how God works in human hearts, how God brings people by ways unexpected, ways that seem to violate his own normal ways of doing things. And it's such a remarkable tale, such a remarkable story, it doesn't need any embellishment to enhance its wonder. And so having said that, by way of contrasting the real story with all of the false embellishments, I want to say something now about the importance of the visit. Surely the faith that worships the king, contrasted with the hatred of Herod, who is threatened by Jesus' birth, that contrast is, is really an amazing one. I said I wasn't going to talk much about Herod, but again, Herod is an example Again, of that person who wants to be in control of all things, who wants to be number one and dominate and doesn't want to live under the authority of anyone. In the spirit of our ages, we want our own autonomy. We want to be self-governing. Who is the Lord that he should reign over us? Is this is the real, real intent of our hearts? To think there's a king that I should be under his authority, a king greater than, than me, someone to command my allegiance, my love, my loyalty, becomes a threat to our perceived rights to our own independence. But you know, our 
own independence is a lie when you really come down to it. Because what happens, all the people that want to declare their independence from God, they want to declare their independence from Christ, they want to declare their independence from Scripture, what do they do? They become dependent upon drugs, they become dependent upon alcohol, they become dependent upon sex, they become dependent upon gambling, they become all kinds of dependencies, they become dependent upon other people, they become slaves, which really scripture tells us we are. We're all serving something or someone. Just a question whether we serve what is going to destroy us or what is going to save us. Do we, destroy, do we worship and serve a king who loves us? And who showers such love upon us that he's fully trustworthy to be worshipped and served and followed? Or are we going to give ourselves into the hands of uncertainty? And things that well nigh will can destroy us and ultimately will destroy us. It's whether we become dependent upon the true God or a God we fashioned and made out of our own imaginations and designs and desires. But Matthew, by placing this story here right at the beginning of his account of Jesus, is surely indicating something of Jesus' accomplishment as the one who saves his people from their sins. The first people saved from their sins in Matthew's account or who come to Jesus and worship Jesus are just not the kind of people we think God's in the business of saving. These are raw pagans. We think his people that he saves from their sins are Israelites. We go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's he doing bringing raw pagans, worshiping the, the stars, gazing at the stars? Well, the reality is that Jesus has the people whom he will save through his gospel from every single part of the world. Chapter 8 of this gospel speaks of the faith of a Roman centurion, wasn't a Jew. And Jesus says of the faith of that man, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And he goes on to say, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and recline a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is a gospel that ends with the call to make disciples of all the nations. And now here in chapter 2, the nations begin to come to Jesus. But it's no mere accident that this passage is stated the way it is. When it says, In the days of Herod the king, behold... Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Surely in Matthew's vocabulary, he could have said Persia. He could have named a country. But he says from the east. And that is an important note in a gospel that's concerned to present Jesus to us as the one whose saving work is ultimately a restoration of the effects of sin brought about by the fall of man. Because what happened after Adam and Eve sinned? They're driven out of the Garden of Eden, and it was at the east end of the Garden of Eden that God placed a cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way of the Tree of Life. Exiled from God's presence was an eastward movement. They went to the east. 
And that began a series of events in which distance from God is measured by a movement towards the east. It's emphasized in Genesis. Cain in Genesis 4.16, it says, He went away from the presence of the Lord in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The builders of the Tower of Babel did what they did in chapter 11, verse 2, as people migrated eastward. ESV, for some reason, is from the east. It's not from the east. They're going eastward. Eastward is a direction away from the presence of the Lord. Isaiah 2 and verse 6 speaks of the people of Israel being rejected because they're filled with things from the east. They're filled with eastern customs, eastern ways. That's not saying the east is more evil than the west. But it is saying that there is this matter of separation from God that is depicted by this language from the east. When the people of Israel were sent into captivity, it was into the east they went. And God went with them. He left the temple in Ezekiel chapter 11. And he goes east over the Mount of Olives to go into captivity with his people. Because the people of Israel had become so wicked and their temple practices became so, so, so wicked and, 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 and horrific that God's glory left the place and God's glory went after his people who were sent into exile. And then in Ezekiel chapter 47, it talks, 43, it talks about God returning to a temple. And he comes from the eastern gate. <laughs> that direction's really there. And so the very fact that these pagan people, these magi, these stargazers, came from the east, is telling us that now the time has come when the effect of the fall is now mitigated. It is now negated. He comes to bring his blessings known. Far as the curse is found. Eastern people distant away from God are now being brought back. That's the picture. That's the picture. The east represents darkness. Separation from God. And for God to break through the darkness of the customs of the east with a star to guide these men away from their occult practices to the embodiment of truth, the embodiment of grace, the embodiment of love found in Israel's king is something remarkable. It's something that is a clear sign that in Jesus God is piercing the darkness of this present evil age and he's shining the light of the knowledge of his glory in ways that are designed to bring the fallen world back to himself what does all that say to us well it says if God has interest in magi we can't never have gone too far away that grace can't bring us, bring us back as far away as we might be from God and as we have served far in Practices that are nothing to do with God, godliness, nothing to do with truth. They take the idea of the ages of these three men, not three, and we don't know their ages. But he is the savior of the twenty-somethings, who have deeply mired in their sinful practices and their sense of liberation. I don't have to be going to church anymore. I'm now on my own. I've my majority and now I rule my own life and then perhaps people begin to see running, running your own life 
That's no picnic. That's no paradise. That's no return to or 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 movement towards anything that's good. That's moving away from truth. You know, you don't find greater light away from the Lord. The light's found in the Lord, with the Lord, towards the Lord, coming back to the Lord. And even in the far country, even in distant lands, even ways far from the east, God can bring you by a, by a star, God can bring you by a series of circumstances, God can bring you by humbling yourself before him. To a place where you don't ever ever question, will God receive me? He receives mag, magi. He receives people that in and of themselves would have no place in worshiping the king of Israel. And yet that worship is received. And these people come into Jesus' presence, having seen the star, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. And as T.S. Eliot adds in his own depiction of this event, they never regret the decision they made to make that long journey to see him and to find him. And as is said often in Christmas cards and such today, wise men still seek him. If you translate the Magi as wise men, wise people still seek him. And we find him. And he embraces us and he receives us. And then... You know, we might question, how in the world does God use stars to do this whole thing? Well, again, God is God. He can use what he wills. But, you know, we're not to look at that and say, well, let's go stargazing. <laughs> this, is not a, this is not a call to go find our future and uh, seeing where the stars align. You know, we look to our future as we trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and don't lead to our own understanding. And all of our ways acknowledge him, having the assurance and the confidence he is guiding our path. God is in our life because Christ has come. God is in our life because he's Emmanuel, God with us. We don't need stars to guide us. We have the one who is the light of the world to guide us. And we won't stumble and we won't fall and we won't find harm in this world as long as we follow him. But God could use whatever means he wants to bring people to Jesus. But the point of it all, it's coming to Jesus. It's finding Jesus. Finding Jesus is to find the truth. It's to find the ruler of the people of God. To find God's presence with us is to find hope. It's to find a future. It's to find reality. And to find life-changing, transforming reality that we never regret. And we never look back on Pun and say, boy, we've just wasted our time with this Jesus. Because to find him is to find life eternal. May God give us joy at this Christmas season. May God be pleased to help us to trust Christ with a firmer grasp, a firmer grip, with a firmer hope. And to enter into the celebration of this Christmas as the wise men did. Seeing him and rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, how thankful we are that you have sent your son. How thankful we are for the ways in which you work in our lives to bring us to the knowledge of him. And oftentimes the experience isn't easy, it's difficult, 
Sometimes we just, in our own folly, stray so far from you, it's almost hopeless to think there's ever a return. But yet you're the God who saves Magi. You're the God who reveals yourself to the most unlikeliest of people. That you are the God from whom we can never stray so far. That there's not a way back to you. We're thankful for the lessons we have gleaned from this passage. We're thankful for the reality that has come into the world with Jesus coming. And with Jesus being the King of the Jews, the light of the world, being the Savior of sinners, being Emmanuel, God with us, being the King whose right to rule should be for us the greatest joy that we can consider, that we are not our own, that we're bought with a price, and we're called to glorify you. So be pleased to hear our prayers, be pleased to bless your people, be pleased to go with us to our celebrations, with our loved ones, with our family, and help us, Lord, to enjoy the blessings that you freely bestow upon us as those who are able to trace those blessings back to their source, that you are the God who has given us all things richly to enjoy. We thank you for your gifts, and we thank you for the greatest gift of all, the gift of salvation in your Son. We ask that you receive our praise and thanksgiving as we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.